rest of us, why don't you open up to the book of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, or Habakkuk. Pronounce it as you will. We don't know for sure how his name was pronounced, but I'm going to go with Habakkuk. How about that? Uh, so Habakkuk, it, it might be new to a lot of you. Um, it's a book that we're going to study now. There's three chapters for the next three weeks. We're going to take a look at this book. It's a little book, only three chapters long, but it takes on some big themes, some huge themes, and I'm excited to explore them with you. Here is one of the themes that this book takes on. I believe we have this for the screens. Why does God appear to sit on the sidelines when there's so much violence and injustice in our world? Isn't that a good question? Why does God appear to sit on the sidelines when there's so much violence and injustice in our world? That is a perennial question. And today's headlines can make you wonder why God doesn't step in more than he does. You know, I, I look at, in fact, I don't want to watch the news anymore. Um, but because it's filled with so much disturbing stuff. We've got Christians that are getting beheaded by extremists. The news is filled with horrific stories of, of people attacking entire towns and villages, killing men, enslaving women and children in the name of religion. We see video footage of a police officer shooting a man as he tries to run away. We see video footage then also of people protesting the abuse of power by looting and destroying property. We see and hear story after story after story of children being abused by priests, by teachers, by coaches, and by others in positions of authority. We hear stories of dangerous nations getting closer to getting nuclear bombs. And we continue to hear stories of North Korea's leader that you couldn't make up if you tried. And there are those of us who ask, God, what are you doing in the midst of all this? Where are you? Most of us, I think, have asked the question before, God, why didn't you stop the abuser in their tracks? You could have done that. Why didn't you? Why not send us leaders who lead instead of follow polls? Why not? And, and this one, God, why don't you just show up in full glory mode to those ISIS knuckleheads and just say, knock it off. You're done. You're done. Why not? Well, one of the questions that we're going to wrestle with is this one. There's one place to put this in your notes. We're going to explore this question that comes directly from the book of Habakkuk. I'm just using different words. We're going to explore this question together for the next three weeks. There's a place to write this in your notes. Why doesn't God always respond in expected ways? How many of you have heard the phrase, the Lord works in mysterious ways? You heard that one? Okay. Why doesn't God more often work in expected ways? That's a question that a lot of us have. If God is perfect, if God is just, if God is loving, if God can see all things and do all things, why doesn't he prevent atrocities that you or I would prevent if we had the power to do so? Well, people have been asking questions like this for thousands of years. We're not the first. And a prophet named Habakkuk asked them about 2,600 years ago. And here's one of the reasons we're looking at this. Because Habakkuk didn't just ask the question. God gave him an answer. Now, his answer was specific to Habakkuk's question. But we can learn a lot through this answer that God gave him. So let's take a look. If you have your Bibles, let's open up Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one free today. We always try to keep a stack of them at the two tables at the current exit to the uh, building um, here or the room, and they're there for you to keep. All right, it opens up like this. It opens up with the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. 
Now, we don't know a lot about the prophet himself. From what we can piece together, he lived near the end of the 7th century BC. There is one ancient document called Bell and the Dragon that's included in a collection of books called the Apocrypha. One of my sources said that in that book, Habakkuk supplies food for Daniel while he was in the lion's den. I'll have to fact check that. I've got, I'll, I'll know when I get a book on Tuesday from Amazon.com. But that's what one of my sources said, that this is in there. Well, we don't know other than that a lot about him himself. What we do have, though, is the ancient document that's included in our Bibles, a book that he wrote himself. And it was preserved painstakingly so from generation to generation to generation. And what we see, if we could put that verse 1 back up on the screen here, what we see is that, that Habakkuk was carrying a heavy burden. That's why I put that Hebrew word up there. It's a, it, this is the Hebrew word, and it's a more direct translation instead of saying oracle. It's a more direct translation to say he was, it was a burden. That would be a more direct translation of that word. He, it was a burden. As a prophet, Habakkuk had eyes to see the way things should be, the way things should be. And, and the headlines of his day weighed heavy on him, too. His world was a mess. We think our world's a mess. His world was a mess. Jewish leadership was a disaster. A disaster. With a few notable exceptions, like King Josiah, things were so bad that the children of Israel, they'd actually split from one kingdom into two, and things were going horrible. The priests were corrupt, too. When it came to the temple, God had left the building long, long ago. People were dedicating their horses to a sun god. A god named Baal was being worshipped in the high places. There were even Jewish parents sacrificing their children to the god Moloch. Things were bad, and that's just the internal chaos and confusion and corruption. Externally, the nation of Assyria had oppressed the Jewish people for more than a century, inflicting pain and destruction and forcing them to pay an economy-crippling tribute. And following them were the Egyptians, putting a puppet of theirs on the throne in Jerusalem. Habakkuk was burdened. He was burdened by all that he saw around him. And what did he do? He went to the Lord of Israel. And here we have a chance to look at his cry to the God that he knew. He says this, start picking up with verse 2. Oh, Lord. And he uses the covenant name of God. He makes his personal. He says, oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you don't hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you don't save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you Idly look at wrong. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife, contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous, and justice goes forth perverted. The Bible is a brutally honest and if you read it from cover to cover, you will find example after example after example of people crying out to God in their confusion and in their pain and in their frustration, in their despair. And you'll see a lot of anger directed at God if you read the scriptures coming from a whole lot of people. Again, most of us have heard the cliche, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Let's be honest with ourselves. 
there are times where we wonder why doesn't God work in more expected ways. Exactly. Consider those men, another from our headlines, the men who threw Christian refugees into the Mediterranean Sea. How cold do you have to be to throw people who are fleeing from persecution? How cold do you have to be to throw a refugee into the sea with no hope of survival? How cold do you have to be? And here's the thing. God in the past has shown he can, he can prevent an army. He can stop a wicked army. How hard would it have been for God to make those guys, I'm not trying to be funny, how hard would it be for God to have made those guys just so seasick that they couldn't do anything? God could do that. Why didn't he? Why didn't he? If God is who he claims to be, God saw that coming. Why didn't he stop it? Why not? As I mentioned earlier, Habakkuk, he affords us with a unique opportunity because Habakkuk is asking this type of question. It, my world is a mess. There is injustice. There is, there is external persecution. Come on, what's going on? Well, Habakkuk's questions don't just hang out there. God answers. And let's take a look at how God answers, picking up with verse 5. Look among the nations. This is God speaking to Habakkuk. And see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth and seize dwellings not their own. They're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from who? Themselves. They're a law unto themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and they take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose might is their God. Was that the answer that Habakkuk was looking for? Nope. He was under the Assyrian and, and, and the, the, the uh, Egyptian empire. And the, the Assyrian empire was about to crumble, but not by way of Gideon or a Samson or a Deborah or another godly Jewish champion, as was the case in days of old. The Chaldeans, they were an upstart tribe from southern Babylon. In fact, some of your Bibles might have, instead of Chaldean, might have just skipped a couple of years down the road and just put Babylon or Babylonians there. And what God said about them came to pass. If you, don't, if you need to fact check the Bible, go ahead. Grab a history book on this. Go ahead and, and look it up for yourself. You may have heard of a man named Nebuchadnezzar. He led these upstart Chaldeans, these Babylonians, to victory over the Assyrians and consolidated this Babylonian empire. And after his father's death in about 605 B.C., he became king over this vast new empire. And the Babylonians proved to be all that God said they would be. They were swift, they were ruthless, and they were unstoppable. It was just a matter of time before this prophecy literally came true. They piled up earth and they took Jerusalem. 
They destroyed the city. They slaughtered thousands who hadn't already starved to death during the siege. And they carried off exiles to Babylon like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and possibly Habakkuk himself. This was not the answer that Habakkuk was looking for. And he said, hey, you've got to rescue us from these yahoos. God was going to send people that are arguably worse. So Habakkuk counters. He says, okay, God, you said that. Whoa, 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 whoa. So Habakkuk speaks, picking up with verse 12. Are you not, now this is Habakkuk talking to God. Are you not from everlasting? Oh Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. Oh Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? In other words, it was bad enough that you are sitting on the sidelines with these awful Assyrians and unjust Jewish leaders. Now this whole thing with Babylon just baffles me. Why? Habakkuk's saying, why am I reminding you that you're the Almighty. Why do I have to do this, God? Why do I have to remind you that you're into justice? Why do I have to remind you of these things? Why would you allow the wicked to swallow up those who are more righteous than, than they are? There's got to be a better way. Then Habakkuk goes into full-on, hey, God, it's like this mode. And he says this. He goes, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them with his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net. And he makes things, the offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever. In other words, God, are we like fish to you? Are we like fish to you? Are, are we that small in your eyes that you would allow these guys to be like a fisherman who just gathers up fish? Is that what we are to you? And to the kind of fisherman who doesn't even give you the glory for the catch. Again, he says, do I have to remind you of this, God? You said it yourself. These are, quote, guilty men whose might is their God. And yet, here you are raising them up. Even though you know that they're going to give themselves the credit, they will worship their own weapons before they worship you. Why are you doing this? Habakkuk has gone where most of us go when we're confronted with evil and injustice. He takes it out of a philosophical problem because we're going to press into this next week. Evil, the problem of evil is not a philosophical problem. It's not. It's not. But it's highly personal. Highly personal. Habakkuk was asking questions that most of us can re relate to all too well. God, where are you right now? Not as a philosophical entity. Where are you as my Savior, as my Deliverer, as their Savior, as their Deliverer? Why don't you hear our prayers? Don't you care? My God, my God, we ask, why have you forsaken me? Habakkuk gets very real with God. We just saw that. And then he basically steps back and he says this. And here's the transition to the chapter we'll look at next week. 
He says, I'll take my stand at my watch post. I'll station myself on the tower, and I'm going to look and see what you say, God, back to me. Now, if we had lots of time, we could just continue to read. And so I'm going to give you a spoiler alert right now. Habakkuk's questions, they never get fully answered. They don't. There's not a place where God is able to explain everything and answer every one of Habakkuk's questions. But by the end of the book, Habakkuk is at peace. He's at peace with the mystery. He's at peace with God. And here's why. I'd encourage you to write this down in your notes. You don't have to fully understand everything about a person before you can trust them. Can I get an amen? You don't have to fully understand someone before you trust them. In fact, may I present to you, nobody does that. Nobody does. When it comes to God, most people are so inconsistent because they say to God, I need to fully understand you before I can trust you. We never do that. We never do that. Example I've given before is an airplane. You're, when you step onto that plane, you're stepping onto a big explosive that is going to be flying up really high in the sky. Do you fully understand and trust and know everything about everyone involved? How many, I don't even know how many parts an airplane consists of, but those were manufactured by people you don't know. That plane was assembled by people you don't know. That plane is maintained by people you don't know. Right? And if you're flying out of Colorado these days, out of Denver, you may want to know a little bit about some of the people working on your plane. Right? But there, there are, it is piloted by people you don't know. It is attended to by staff that you don't know. You are surrounded by 100 plus people you don't know. And you're going to lift off and you're going to fly through airspace and there's no way that you can guarantee there's not going to be something in your way between where you take off from and where you land. Do we ever act in faith, people? Yes, every day, every day. And not just with trivial things, with our lives. We act in faith all the time. Every time you send your kids off to school, let me freak parents out a little bit. Think of all the unknowns when you send that kid off to school every day. Every time you pass a ball to a teammate, every time you swipe your credit card, every time you put anything in your mouth, you are acting on incomplete information. Isn't that true? As an adult, as people who understand things or should understand things better than kids, have you ever tried to argue with a three-year-old? <laughs> Why? 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 There's always another why, right? Are our answers ever satisfactory? Not all the time. There are times where there's always another why. There's always another why. And that why, 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 why will end either when you say, go to your room, when you say, because, or when they can trust you enough to say, I don't understand, but okay. If God is who he says he is, there are times where our why, 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 we will never have a satisfactory answer. Let me say this for the record. We are not going to water down things here at this church. If you are looking for a heavenly father who will satisfactorily answer every one of your questions, you won't find him in the Bible. If you are looking for a God who conforms to your expectations, 
you won't find him in the scriptures. But let me tell you about the God that you will find. Please write this down. The God who raised up the Chaldeans, he also raised up who? The Christ. Amen. The God who worked in history in this unexpected way, he raised up a wicked nation to do justice? The God who did that, and, 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 and still to this day, that is problematic to me. I, I've, I've, I've read and I've heard people explain and all that kind of stuff. You're still, you're, you're still having God raise up wicked people who did horrible things. I can't fully get my arms around that. But neither can I fully get my arms around the Christ. In fact, that was so unexpected, it literally divided history from A.D. to B.C., that's how big that was. That there is a God who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him, put their faith, put their trust in him, would have everlasting life. You want something shocking that happened in history? There's nothing more shocking than that. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Which leaves us with a choice. The last thing I want to encourage you to write down in your notes is this. You can shake a fist at heaven or you can follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Who, while he was on the cross, unjustly, felt what we often feel, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he trusted his heavenly father, even unto death, because he knew that God was trustworthy. And he experienced a resurrection that was the first fruits of a resurrection that we'll all experience. So we can look at history, and there's all kinds of things, whether it's long ago or recent history, and we say, God, this doesn't make sense to me. How much sense does it make for God to become one of us and to be nailed to a cross? The author of Hebrews puts it this way. Hebrews chapter 13, 5 through 6. Be content with what you have, for God has said, I will never... I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can people do to me when there is a God who would not spare his one and only son? Well, God's words, they're written in black and white. And they were sealed with the blood that he shed on our behalf. His ways are higher than our ways. And there will be things that we can't fully understand, including his love for you and I. So we want to give you a chance to respond to that right here, right now. I'm going to ask the worship band to come up. Let's pray together. And this is a real humbling prayer because in this prayer, we're laying down our rights to say, God, you need to step up to my expectations before I can trust you. This is us saying, God, you are, your ways aren't our ways. And we're coming to you and we're putting our full trust in you. But we can do that. We can do that out of what he first did for us. There's nothing more trustworthy than self-sacrificial love, and that's the act of trust we'll take today. So let's pray these prayers together, and then we're going to give you a chance to respond in what's called Holy Communion. Please pray these words out loud with me, if you would. Do we have the uh, prayers there? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts are open and all desires are known, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. We confess that we are sinners and cannot save ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. 
we have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We are not worthy for these gifts which we are about to receive, but say the word and we will be made clean. We want to give you an opportunity to respond to that now in another way, and that is through the sacrament of Holy Communion. And the way we do it at our church isn't the right way to do it. It's just the way we do it. Um, instead of having an usher say it's time for you to come forward, we have it be a deliberate decision on your part. So there won't be any ushers. What we'll do is I'll pray one more time, and then there'll be a brief instrumental to allow you a chance to just solidify these in your heart. The um, communion servers will come forward then uh, during that instrumental, and they'll get into place, and then at any time once the uh, songs begin, we invite you to come forward to receive. You don't have to be a member of this church, um, but we do ask, because the Bible does, that you only come forward if this is sincere and that you've decided to say, I'm going to put my trust in Jesus Christ and follow him. All right, so let's pray. See what's going on. God, um, I mean, this, this kind of message reveals why I'm a horrible counselor. Um, and uh, I, Lord, thank you, though, that you give us such direct words and messages sometimes. And we pray that your Holy Spirit can now translate this into the person who is broken, the person who's hurting, those of us who are facing things that are crippling because we are crying out right now, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it doesn't make sense. And, and it, doesn't, um, it doesn't appear to be something that a loving God would allow. So Holy Spirit, do what my words can't and, and speak directly to those hearts and minds. Assure them of your love. Call them to this table. Fill them with hope that you who rose from the dead can bring beauty from ashes and transform what was broken into something beautiful as you've done so many other times. For those of us who need the challenge, straight up, head on, God, we, we forgive us for for. for offering sacrifices to our own efforts and our own nets. Forgive us for saying, by my hands, I have done this. I've created this or I've, I've accomplished this. Lord, I pray that you'd humble all of us to that broken place so that we could be reshaped and refashioned in your image as we gather on your table and do this in remembrance of you. And Father, as, as uh, another act of solidarity, we pray now a prayer that you taught your disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.